Week 44 of 60 Weeks, 60 Books takes in many aspects of human experience, all beginning with a C. Cannibalism, castration, communism, crime, confusion. It is a book that I have read numerous times, and every time it surprises, intrigues, and amazes. This week I'm looking at The People's Act of Love, the 2005 novel by journalist and writer James Meek. Alert, unusually for me, absolutely no spoilers, although there is quite a bit of delving into characters. Whilst I can say that every reading has been richer, it is also a book that fully deserves to have its secrets and surprises maintained for the first-time reader. Meek was born in 1962. He was bureau chief in Moscow for The Guardian from 1994 to 1999 and also covered conflicts in Afghanistan and Iraq after 9-11. He's doing some interesting writing now for the London Review of Books about the war in Ukraine, and I also hope that he is working on his next novel. That said, whilst I enjoyed his most recent novel, To Calais in Ordinary Time, it did not have, for me, that compelling quality that sets the people's act of love apart from most other novels that I have read. Rereading it has been a voyage of discovery, like coming across an old photo album or opening up a box and finding old letters and postcards. But when you start looking at the postcards and the photographs in detail, the images can bear horrors. This is a historical novel set in a Siberian town, Yazik, situated somewhere in the 1400 kilometres between Omsk and Krasnoyarsk unfolding over the course of a few days in 1919 when the Red Army is approaching the town. It is populated by a religious sect of castrated men and mutilated women and the remnants of a Czech company which has fought through World War I as part of the Austro-Hungarian army and has now found itself on the side of the White Russians in the civil war that followed the 1917 revolution. There is also a widow, Anna Petrovna, with her boy, the only child in the town. The sect is led by a shopkeeper, Balashov, the Czech company by a dangerous 24-year-old, Matula. The action begins with the arrival of an escaped convict, Samarin, in town, and a sense of impending uncertainty as the Red Army nears the town, and first, a shaman who has been arrested in the town and then one of the Czech soldiers, Clement, are murdered. Everyone has secrets, gradually uncovered by Josef Mutz, one of Matula's lieutenants. Mutz is Jewish, a German-speaking, Czech-educated and a capable, and the victim of Matula's incessant and violent anti-Semitic bile. The plot is twisty, the characters are even twistier. The book is a page-turner, it's also a mystery and a meditation. Reviewers pronounce on what they believe this book is about, but like all great books, It is fundamentally about who we humans are, what we are, about how we come to hurt one another and ourselves, about heartache and destruction, our weakness and our inclination towards extreme cruelty. When I began this week's outline, I looked for the old notes I'd made about the book prior to teaching it to a sixth form class over a decade ago back in Brussels. I could not find them. Not the useful plot breakdown, the character sketches, the mind maps of themes and imagery, the timeline, the structural outline, all of which would have saved me so much time. And then I began reading and in any case could not put the book down yet again. Although this could be disputed, for me the central character is Mutz, who lost his family as a child, became an engraver 
for the bank in Prague until conscripted to fight in 1914 and is a reluctant witness to the depravity of Matula. Certainly flawed, at times weak, Mutz, formerly a corporal but promoted to lieutenant by Matula, is fundamentally a bystander. Before the start of the book, Matula has led his company in a massacre and loathes Mutz partly because he is Jewish and partly for Mutz's refusal to participate directly in the massacre. The young cruel captain has no understanding of Mutz's own sense of shame and guilt and tries to incite the Czechs to turn against him, to murder him. But the Czech troops are terrified both of their own actions and Matula's whims and furies. All they really want is to leave Russia, to get to Vladivostok and start the long journey back to Europe. But Mutz is conflicted. He is in love with Anna Petrovna, the widow of a hussar, killed five years before the start of the war, who has come to the town with her son Alyosha. Anna Petrovna is the daughter of a weak and talentless man with the funds to support himself and his family whilst he plays at being an artist. As she reaches adulthood, Anna understands the emptiness of both her father's work and his life. Her mother gives her a camera, which is at once a lens to reveal the world beyond her father's sphere of influence and a barrier between herself and that world. Then she goes to a rally held by striking workers at a local factory, and there she meets her hussar, who saves her from being maimed or killed in a chaotic melee. They court, they marry, and she is left pregnant as he goes to join the World War I battles and does not return. When the Czechs arrive in Yazik, Anna has an affair with Mutz, but she cannot love him. She appreciates many of his qualities. She describes him to Samarin as a man of good intentions, not quite handsome, a Jew in Russia, like a penguin in the desert, as Meek puts it. Instead, she is infatuated with Samarin and pleads with Matula to release him on bail. Samarin is the most extraordinary character in the novel and one of the most unusual characters I've encountered in any book. The opening of the book introduces us to him as a student, an intellectual. In parallel with Mutz, he is raised by an uncle, his parents having died by the time he was around two. He has a charisma that makes men believe he is their friend and women believe that he is dedicated to them, but in truth he is a distant and sinister figure. He weaves narratives about himself, where he has been, what he has seen, who he has encountered, what he has done or had done to him. And then gradually, steadily, inevitably, the truth emerges about him. There I must stop, as I have pledged not to spoil this book. That said, Meek achieves a rare feat, and now that I have another 15 years of reading under my belt, since I first opened this book, it seems even more admirable. His characters are at once complex, contradictory, full of nuance, and fully credible impulses and actions. They seem very real and realistic but they also represent far deeper archetypes. Throughout the book, Meek explores ideas of identity, nationality, personality, authenticity and integrity. And whilst his characters seem grounded and plausible, they're also symbolic, rich with more freighted concepts underpinning their human frailty. They themselves identify their own symbolic value and worth. Anna asks Samarin if, she, if he thinks she is a slut because she has slept with Mutz. Mutz, she clearly thinks he, she is. Mutz, in turn, tries to resist Matula's cruel taunts and jibes while seeing himself as fundamentally other from his Czech comrades. 
even though he is an atheist. He feels his own Jewishness not simply because it is used as a weapon against him by Matula, but because it is also part of his being, part of what makes him smart and capable and able to work out the likely consequences of the events that unfold around him and their causes. Samarin is, from the start, a dangerous creature. Early in the book, as he nears Yazik, he encounters one of the villagers, the shopkeeper Balashov, who watches this stranger carefully, noting the coldness and the humanity that leeches from his features. We see Samarin taking advantage of Balashov, stealing his wallet and a photograph of a young woman tucked in his bag, examining the contents of his bag. Somehow, even though Meek is not explicit, we know that Samarin is not as he seems, that he has darker, much more sinister depths. Balashov is also a fascinating character, fearful and courageous, connected more closely to the other characters than we initially realise. He is the leader of the town's religious sect, the Skoptsi, who have mutilated themselves, the men cutting off what they call the keys to hell, I leave that to your imagination, the women removing their breasts in the belief that these physical alterations will render them into angels. The span of the story is a few days, those few days between Samarin's arrival, the occupation of the town by the communists and the departure of what remains of the Czech company reduced from 171 to under 100 men, in no small part thanks to Matala's cruelty. I can't give any more details, but what I can say is that this book made me think about so many different things. First, there is the whole question of perspective, how we see things, what we choose to see and what we somehow miss, both by accident and design. Anna's father is a poor artist, but his daughter is a gifted photographer, yet even she misses what is later very clear, almost obvious, about the men close to her. And then there is love. Mutz, Anna, Balashov, Samarin are all full of love, but the nature of that love is unique to each of them. Each one of them is acts out of love, even if they don't recognise it, or are determined to delude themselves that they're not capable of love, or that their love of some other external concept or idea is far stronger than the love between humans. It is fundamentally love that drives their actions, and this emerges in unexpected and astonishing ways. The book presents us with a very specific time and place, and Meek describes it beautifully, both in the backstories of the characters, the experiences that made them what they are, recounted in the opening chapters, and over the course of the actual action of the story, covering those few October days, just as the snow is beginning to fall in Yazik and the Bolshevik victory over their enemies is being sealed. There are moments where he captures the harsh, bleak beauty of the vastness of Siberia. There are moments when we are transported into the midst of tumultuous action. There are incredible showdowns and set pieces. I found every scene enthralling. And even though I know the book, and I've read it numerous times, unexpected. I've not mentioned in detail the cannibalism, but the way this is revealed and depicted is extraordinary, memorable and genuinely horrifying. It is not simply about the depravity of the act itself, but also the circumstances around it. It is simultaneously a gruesomely familiar tale and completely weird and original. Finally, this is a kaleidoscope of a book. It's at once coherent and consistent 
a beautifully constructed story revealing human impulses rooted in our essence, in our true being, but also a story that gives us a rich view of a completely different time and place. It is made up of disparate elements that are brought together to form an apparently clear image that dissipates and reformulates as we learn more of the characters and their choices. As you might have gathered, of the modern novels I've read, this is absolutely one of my favourites, and of the books I have covered so far, probably the one I would most universally recommend. Of course, if you look closely at Amazon reviews or Goodreads, you will find naysayers, but I hope that by now you will trust me when I say this book is magnificent and you should read it. Next week, a very different work, non-fiction, from a master not of fiction but of economics and development. Join me for a look at Amartya Sen's 1999 book, Development as Freedom. <laughs>